two millennia ago, Christians began as a persecuted people who followed their Lord who himself was persecuted and crucified. Even now, a vast majority of Christians outside the so-called West are maligned, harassed, or killed for their beliefs. That's why it is the most bitter irony of history that in times and places that Christianity held power, religious persecutions, inquisitions, and wars were perpetrated in its name. And even now, its most visible adherents are often associated with bigotry, ignorance, and hypocrisy. So what happened? Part of the answer is revealed in the many examples where the same evils, persecutions, injustices, and murder were perpetrated in the name of other religions or by non-religious or anti-religious ideologies. In every instance, such acts were overlooked, covered up, or even justified by the claim for some greater good. And this shouldn't come as a surprise. Because every evil, Christianity warns, is parasitical to the good. Evil always lurks behind us in our quest toward the good, and if we ever listen to its whispers, it will not only pull us away from our quest, it will distort and twist the quest itself. And this warning, sadly, is far too often forgotten. Welcome to What Do You Mean God Speaks, where we explore important ideas, insights, and stories in Christianity for the skeptics who want to understand religion, to the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs, and everyone in between. I am Paul Sungo Jung, and this is our 11th episode. How a nightmare plagues every dream of God's kingdom, or how evil lurks behind Christianity and every other good thing. Those who denounce religion on the one side, and those who denounce atheism on the other, can make for a strange sort of mirror image of each other. One side argues that religion is harmful to humanity, that its leaders are often hypocritical and corrupt, and that inquisitions, wars, and mass murder were perpetrated in the name of religions. Even now, many religious nationalists, the Hindu, Buddhist, Islamic, or Christian variants, visibly demonstrate ignorance, bigotry, and intolerance in their respective societies across the world. But those who defend religion respond that such people are not the true followers of their religion, or at least they are not the right representatives. Then they go on to point out that nearly every major modern state that has banned religion outright or are officially atheists, such as the Soviet Union, the Khmer Rouge, North Korea, or Maoist China, were perpetrators of mass detention, deprivation, and murder at a scale never before seen in history, and their officials displayed willful ignorance, denials, or even justifications for their atrocities, atrocities committed during their man-made famines, their cultural revolutions, or their gulags, killing fields, and correction camps. But those who defend atheism respond that such people aren't truly atheists, or at least the right kind of atheists who defend freedom, humanism, and similar values. However, this mirroring on both sides ignores a real and far more pressing question. Why is it that both sides have these so-called the wrong kind of people appear, And why do they tend to become so powerful to set up states, to sway elections, to form mobs, and to police thoughts and behaviors of their societies? 
because in all the finger pointing, we ignore the greater danger that there seems to be something in all of us that can raise up such people regardless of our religious or non-religious allegiance. Let's talk about evil. Now, Christianity, specifically the Roman Catholic position, distinguishes moral evil to what it calls natural evil. Natural evils are the terrible things that can happen in nature, such as storms or earthquakes, illnesses or failing health. Moral evils are evils that free moral agents, such as us human beings, can commit, such as deceit, injustice, or murder. We are interested in the latter. After all, I think the term natural evil is somewhat of a misnomer. Moral evil and what Catholics called natural evil seem to differ radically from each other at a fundamental level. Things like earthquakes or storms, for example, may cause devastation and suffering, but it seems odd to call them evil. So I believe it's better to think about the distinction between moral evil and the suffering caused by the so-called natural evil as that of evil as opposed to tragedies. Now, this idea isn't mine, and the most accessible articulation of this difference between evil and tragedy that i found so far is from a psychologist named Jordan Peterson. So I recommend that you Google his talk on tragedy versus evil for an insightful reflection on the topic. Moreover, he goes in-depth into psychological motivations for evil, especially when he talks about the stories of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, which we will need to wait until season 2 of this series to explore. As for this episode, as I said, we want to focus not on tragedy, but evil, and specifically on one key aspect of evil which is relevant to our question, why evil arises or even seems to thrive among those who claim to act for some greater good, whether in religious or non-religious or even anti-religious settings. Now, there's a particular understanding of evil in Christian theology a position which includes those like Augustine, Boethius, and Thomas Aquinas. And it states that evil is an absence of good. Now keep in mind that in Christian thought, goodness, truth, and being, that is existence, are closely linked together, different sides of the same coin, so to speak. So the absence of good is to an extent the absence of an existence, or at least something that should exist. Illness is the absence of health. Moral evil is the absence of moral good. And this is closely tied with the very idea of God, since for Christianity, God is not a mere entity. God is reality, being itself, truth itself, and goodness itself. Thus, the absence of good is in a sense also an absence of God, so that evil in a way lacks existence, lacks a reality. Of course, at first glance, this view has some obvious flaws, since evil really exists. Disease and cancer exist, as do moral evils such as malice, hatred, or cruelty. These aren't something ephemeral, they are real, existent things. But the Christian understanding of evil is not simply saying that evil just does not exist. Rather, evil is a defect, a marring of the good that exists. Thus, God does not create evil. Evil is a twisted, distorted remains of the goodness of what exists, of what God has brought into being. That is, 
Evil cannot exist on its own. It must feed off from what is good, sort of like a virus or cancer. Evil is parasitical. For one thing, evil is parasitical on existence. Twelve exist. Again, the Christian position is that existence as such is good. Which is not to say that not existing is evil per se. It is probably better to think of the term existence here as something being real. Or perhaps something being true. Again, the two are inseparably linked. And we generally use the word real or true to mean something good. You are being real. Or that idea presents something real. Or even regarding a work of fiction, we may say, there was something profoundly real or true about that story. And this is also especially the case in terms of moral good. Feeding the hungry or making peace with our neighbors are good, but only if we make them happen for real. Of course, intending to do something good is better than not intending it at all, but if you merely intended to do something good, like say, helping out your friend who's in trouble, but did not actually do it, we consider that a moral failure at least to some degree. That is, when it's about doing something good, not making it happen for real makes it less good. Now, this isn't quite how it works with moral evil. Say, you intended to beat down your neighbor to take her car, yet did not make it happen for real. Now, if it was your decency or love for your neighbor that stopped you, it's not that you simply did not make it happen. Rather, your intention itself changed so that you did something else like asking her for a ride in her car. However, if you merely failed to carry out your evil intention, say you flailed your fist uselessly before she flung you to the ground with a well-practiced throw, then all your moral defects are still with you. It's that you are also inept and weak. Your inability to make your evil plan happen for real is not a moral good. It is yet another defect, though your defect was to the fortune of your neighbor. However, if you are able to make it real, if you had the strength or the cunning to rob her car, those abilities in themselves are not what makes you evil. They merely made your evil effective. This brings us back to the point, evil is parasitical on the good. It needs something good to make its effect real in the first place. But this principle is actually wider than that. There is a spectrum of ways in which evil can feed off on what is good to expand its reach. Even the most chaotic, sadistic person whose philosophy is might makes right or anything is okay if I can make some money is still parasitical to the simplest level of what is good. They require might, prosperity, or intelligence to even live in such a way. And traits like might or intelligence are good things. If a person is selfish, sadistic, or greedy, but lacks those traits, it does not make them more good or less evil, it just makes them inept. Those traits simply enable their evil inclinations, like virus taking over a cell or cancer feeding off the healthy body to grow. But there's the next level in the spectrum. 
because most people at least pretends to be good. And that's no wonder. Societies will reject completely amoral people. We can't trust those who we know will turn against us for profit or for kicks. We can't stand selfish, greedy people taking advantage of us. And we fear psychopaths who won't hesitate to harm us if it suits them. We won't work with them and we certainly wouldn't follow them if we had another choice. We would, however, listen to those we believe are of good character, people who live with moral principles, who speak the truth, and are working for the sake of everyone, or at least for our sake. We would follow those whose lives and spirits inspire us. Thus, for even greater reach, evil needs to at least pretend to be good. The most clear example of this is when nations or states go to wars. We even have a word for this. Pretext. You really want to go to war because the neighboring country has recently opened a gold mine. And you want both the gold and the slaves who will mine it. But what you will claim as a reason for going to war will be that the ruler who governs your neighboring country is a tyrant and is secretly planning to use the gold from the mine to wage a war against your people because your people will be more willing to fight and die for a just cause, like fighting tyranny and defending their families, than lining up your royal coffers with your neighbor's gold. And any belief system that is the foundation of moral values or spiritual inspiration for your people, that is, religion or non-religious ideologies, are a vast and very ready source of justifications and pretexts. This is why such pretenders will be very adaptive. In societies where a particular religion reigns supreme, they will be pious. In societies where religion is outlawed and a secular or atheistic ideology is enshrined, they will be a fervent member of its political party. After all, you can hardly use a pretext that the rest of your society won't acknowledge. However, pretenders are simply making outward pretension of goodness while inwardly, they know very well their true motivations. Even more insidious and powerful evil emerges when it feeds off from people who truly believe they are doing the right thing. Evil is parasitical then to an even larger, pure good. This is the story of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Bible, who were the prominent religious leaders in the days of Jesus and were also his bitterest enemies. They claim to be motivated by the concern for what is good, to follow the laws that God had given them. Thus, they believe themselves rightfully outraged when they believe Jesus was breaking those commands. Jesus performed miracles of healing people on the Sabbath when everyone was supposed to rest from their work. Worse, he befriended immoral people, like the tax collectors, who extorted money from their fellow countrymen to gain favors from their oppressors, the Roman Empire. The Pharisees wanted to, in the modern parlance I suppose, cancel Jesus because he seemed to condone such immoral actions by his associations and deeds. And Jesus rebuked them in response. They believed themselves as standing for their moral principles, but beneath the facade were their true motivations, greed for honor, arrogant sense of moral superiority, and sheer apathy or contempt for the plight of those they saw as morally beneath them. That was why these religious leaders stood at crowded places to pray loud and long, made a show of giving generous donations, taught strict adherence to moral codes, and 
mercilessly cast down any who fail them. And of course, these motivations can only be fulfilled when the system of values that you justify yourself with are sufficiently influential and respected in the society you live in. The Pharisees were able to do what they did because they clothed themselves with what their society in their time considered as the greatest good. It is because they lived in a Jewish society that they were able to tell others and themselves that what they were doing was for the sake of a greater good, following God's commands in the Torah, and their status was their reward, and they could justify their contempt for those they considered morally inferior or their condemnation of an upstart religious leader named Jesus. But there is always something. Whatever is considered good, admirable, or inspiring in a society is also a fountain of self-justification, of moral posturing, of building up one's ego and status. The Torah might not justify you in the Soviet Union, but the Communist Manifesto might. You want a society where everyone is provided for, with food, income, and housing, and that's a good thing. So you join the secret police, arresting the enemies of the revolution who stand in the way of that dream. Of course, it also happened to elevate you into the upper echelons of the party, and that eyesore of a neighbor was sent to the gulags, but he deserved it. Or perhaps you want your people to embrace progress and throw off the shackles of old thinking that has held them back. That's a good thing. So with Mao's little book, you join the Red Guards of China, tearing down and burning old cultural artifacts and punishing those who cling to the old harmful ways. It's for the sake of your people, after all. It also just happened to win you praise from your comrades, and that old teacher who used to talk down to you was executed, but he deserved it. There's always something, some dream, some ideal, some vision for the good that the darkest impulses hidden in us can feed from, while at the same time justifying those very impulses. The Bible may justify you for how badly you treat certain people in the Bible Belt, but if you live where the Bible does not justify you, perhaps the social justice movement might, or perhaps the environmentalist movement might. There is always something, something that is respected, something that aspires for what is good, something that inspires everyone else to give them meaning and purpose, something that is true, or at least true in some important way. And if every truth and every good is what God speaks, then what you want is something that sounds like the voice of God. Because a show of following it will elevate you in the eyes of others, and of course, more importantly, yourself. And that gives you a cover from which you can impose your darker will. Evil is parasitical. In the Gospels, the very first thing that Jesus does when the Holy Spirit of God leads him to begin his ministry of salvation is to go into the desert and fast for 40 days in order to prepare. And at the end of that 40 days, the devil confronts him. And the devil poses to Jesus three temptations. Now, the person who embodies the fullness of God who speaks at the very threshold of beginning the project of transforming the entire world and arguably at the height of his spiritual empowerment after the fasting is given these following three temptations. We may want to look into that because if these three can tempt Jesus at this moment 
these temptations represent the most insidious and powerful version of the parasitical evil. If you are the Son of God, the devil says, turn these stones into bread. If you want to bring about the good, if you want to manifest God who speaks, do it by winning the people over through their material needs. And what makes this a powerful temptation is that there is truth to what the devil proposes. People do have material needs that should be addressed. People do get hungry and Jesus who just fasted for 40 days would be painfully aware of this. Yet, Jesus refuses and replies, People shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. What makes his response strange is that later during his ministry, Jesus seems to do that very miracle he refused to do. In at least two occasions, the Bible recounts that Jesus becomes concerned for people who have been listening to his teachings until late in the day without any food, especially since that they would then need to make their long track home hungry. So he miraculously brings forth food to feed them all, several thousand in number with a handful of bread and fish. But then our answer emerges in what happened afterward. The crowd becomes amazed and moved by the miracle, and they plan to publicly declare him their king and messiah. Before they can do so though, Jesus quickly sends away his disciples and hides himself. What Jesus was refusing to do was to use bread as a means to compel people into giving him allegiance and acknowledging him as the Son of God. That role is solely for the words from God. That is, Jesus is rejecting any power or influence over people that is anything other than a hold of love and truth. Because every truth is God speaking, and love is the character of the relation between us and God, and love and truth can be rejected, whereas food for the hungry cannot be. Then the devil says, if you are the son of God, jump off the temple, because God has promised that his angels will protect you. That is, if you want to transform the world for the good, then show off a fearsome power. Prove that you are the son of God. Prove that you fully manifest the infinite reality who is personally embodied in you by showing that reality will shift and move in response to your will and do so in front of everyone. And there is great truth to this, showing that you're telling the truth. Yet Jesus refuses, replying, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, his response is strange because throughout his ministry, Jesus performed many miracles when he healed the sick, raised the dead, or walked on water. Yet in most cases, Jesus asked the people he healed to not spread the news of who healed them. His act of healing was not meant to be propaganda. It was meant to show that God was responding in love to their suffering. And it was only his disciples, those who were already following him, who were freely allowed to witness his miracles. What the devil demanded from Jesus was to substitute an ongoing relationship based on love and truth with a display of spiritual power and wonder. The demand was for Jesus to perform the power of God, to direct, to form, and to mold reality in a way that will compel people into giving him allegiance, an allegiance without a real personal relationship. This is why Jesus answered the devil by referencing an event in the Bible. 
After God rescued the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt with a series of miracles, the Israelites tested God by demanding yet another show of God's power. They demanded power as a substitute to the relationship that God had built with them. And Jesus refused this. Relationship built on truth and love can be rejected. Power that terrifies you into allegiance cannot be. Then the devil tells Jesus, All the powers and authorities of the kingdoms of this world were given to me. Bow down to me, and I will give them to you. That is, if you want to transform the world for the good, then you need power. There are ways that kingdoms and empires of this world gain power, and they do so by following my lead. Now, these powers were given to me. They aren't mine originally. Every power and authority is based in reality. They are from God. But I've made them my own in respect to how they work dysfunctionally in the human world so that greed, deceit, and compulsion are necessary. So follow my ways just once or else you won't gain the worldly power you need. Then how can you save the world? And Jesus replied, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This was the final rejection to the call to grasp power, to substitute a relationship of love and truth with something else. This isn't some hippie ideal, by the way. To reject these temptations is to consciously abandon every mode or possibility where you will gain the allegiance of a people by compulsion, so that only the claim of truth and only the call of love remains. And that is a conscious choice to deliberately make yourself vulnerable to rejection and even harm. Why? One reason is that this is a refusal to leave open even a possibility to abuse power. Or in other words, it cuts off the parasitical relationship that evil has with good. It severs us from even the possibility to compel others, to direct their will to our ends, and to trample those we are contemptuous of. It tears down the cover, disarms us of the weapon that our claim for a greater good afforded us once by thrusting us into that vulnerability where we may be rejected, trampled, or made to suffer for the sake of goodness and truth that we claim to uphold. Yet the cost of rejecting the devil is the cross. After all, evil is parasitical, but it cannot feed on one dying on a cross. And the church, for most of its history, dared not make the same choice. We wanted protection, and understandably so. Protection of the state, protection of the law, protection of the society at large. It's hard to let go of power voluntarily once we are given it. If there were ways that other people can be compelled, probably gently, but compelled nevertheless, into conforming to our beliefs and values, we would often take those ways because relying solely on building a meaningful relationship of truth and love, and to refrain from using power, even the power of miracles to compel people, is not merely hard, it's terrifying. Truth may not be enough, and there's even a fear that what holds us may not even be truth. Love may not be enough, theirs or ours or God's. It leaves us vulnerable to rejection and harm. And our impulses to elevate ourselves, to justify our faults, arrogance, greed, or hatred will become hungry, very hungry. So even today, whenever Christianity holds power, the church often succumbs to the temptations that the devil posed to Jesus. And every time it does so, 
the dream of God's kingdom that was entrusted to us becomes more of a nightmare, and it remains one until God again pulls us back to our origin, back to Jesus Christ who was crucified. And this is how evil lurks behind Christianity and everything that is good. So thank you for listening. Apologies for missing the schedule. I really wanted to upload this by March the 13th. Still, the goal is to complete the first season, including the next episode and the remaining extra episode by the end of March. So join me for the next and final main episode of the season, Why Bible is Actually Important. And if you enjoy this content, please subscribe, follow, and share, and rate. All of that apparently affects the visibility of this series in the platform of your choice. So until then, I will be waiting here.